Have you ever got unsolicited parenting advice? I know I have, whether it's when one of my kids has seemingly lost her mind in a grocery store or has just been fussy at church. People, they often feel all too happy to chime in as to how I should handle it. Well, as I thought about that this week, I decided to look up some of the worst parenting advice of all time, and I came up with my top six. So here they are. Number one, it comes from the 1930s. Apparently, people back then were obsessed with getting kids outside. In fact, they told parents that when a baby is three weeks old, to put them outdoors for a short time, a half an hour to an hour, every day that the weather is okay, increasing it gradually until they spend most of their day outside. One borough council in London wanted babies to get more fresh air, and so they they went so far as to propose parents hanging baby cages out their tenement windows. I think we have a picture of that. What do you think of that? I think that is a bad idea. Also, from the 30s, and my second one comes, mothers then were told to start potty training almost immediately after birth and to keep at it until the child was trained at the ripe old age of six to eight months. In fact, the Federal Children's Bureau suggested giving the kids enemas to help them with the process. You want to visit from CAS? Try that today. Well, speaking of things starting early, in the 1960s, a pediatrician called Walter Sackett gave me my third. He endorsed in his book that you feed your baby cereal at, wait for it, two to three days, and bacon and eggs at nine weeks. So that, that's far from the worst. No, at number four, American parents back in the 19th were often encouraged to give Mr. Winslow's soothing syrup to their babies to help with crying and teething. It worked, but mainly because it was made with morphine. It wasn't until 1911 that the American Medical Association released a publication informing parents of the danger. Well, number five is also from the 20s. You see, back then, nurses and mothers were told to wash babies at birth with lard. I don't know about you, but that's something I certainly didn't bring to the birthing suite when my kids were born. But my favorite, probably my favorite, and the last one comes from the 20s as well. In order to have beautiful children, pregnant women were told to avoid thinking about ugly people. (laughs) Of course, parenting advice isn't always that bad, is it? In fact, sometimes it's often quite accurate. Just this week, I read of someone recommending that if you don't know where your children are in the house, turn off the internet and watch them magically appear. I tried it. I have to say it works really well. (laughs) Another person said, if your kids suddenly start getting along and are nice for no apparent reason, be very suspicious. Something my son Bryce told me was very true, and I've become aware of as well. Well, if you hadn't guessed, today in the passage we want to look at, we come across some basic parenting advice from the Apostle Paul. So if you would... Take your Bibles and turn back with me to the book of Ephesians as we make our way through this book, this time chapter 6, as we continue in our study. As you turn there, you'll remember that over the last three weeks, we've been considering what the Apostle Paul meant when he said back in verse 15 of chapter 5 that we should be careful how we walk, something that Paul reminded us we do by making the best use of the time we have, by understanding what the will of God is through his word, and by being filled with the Spirit. Well, it's part of what it means to be filled with the Spirit. Paul had then gone on to give us at least three evidences, three ways that we live in the Spirit and our lives show the Spirit's presence, telling us that those that are filled with the Spirit will sing to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, that they will be thankful and praise God, and that they will submit to one another. Well, that's to that third, that of submitting that we turned our attention to last week as Paul didn't want us to be in the dark as to what that meant, and so he started to play out for us how that would play out in our lives, and he gave us concrete examples. 
Last week, we considered that first concrete example and explored how submitting affected one's marriage, the relationship between a husband and wife. You remember that, well, we discovered a wife is to respect her husband. The husband is called to love his wife in a sacrificial way, constantly putting her interests and her needs before his own, cherishing and nurturing her just as Christ does his church. Well, today we come to Paul's second example as he goes on to tell us how being filled with the Spirit is seen in a relationship, in the relationship between parents and children. Now, before we get there, you need to know that a lot has changed when it comes to parenting between Paul's day and ours. For one, back in that day, a Roman father had far more power than they do today. In fact, when a baby was born, it was placed before its father. And if the father lifted the child up, the child was accepted. And if the father turned away, the child was rejected and literally discarded or left to die or to be picked up by those who trafficked in infants, raising them for the brothels or for slavery. One Roman father wrote to his wife from Alexandria, If good luck to you, you have a child. If it is a boy, let it live. If it is a girl, throw it out. Even after birth, the father had incredible power. He could sell his kids as slaves. He could make them work in his fields, even in chains if he wanted. He could punish them as he liked. He could even inflict the death penalty on them if he thought it was warranted. And it wasn't like a child could just leave and move out and get out from underneath him. As the Roman son never came of age, the power of a Roman father extended over the child's entire life so long as the father lived. Of course, the early church didn't see things quite the same way. And said they followed the example of Jesus, who had shockingly invited the little children to come to him and had scolded his disciples from stopping them. Jesus, by doing so, had taught the value of life. And so when the early church saw discarded babies on the trash heaps, they picked them up. John Stott writes, it was a radical change from the callous cruelty which prevailed in the Roman Empire in which unwanted babies were abandoned, weak and deformed ones were killed, and even healthy children were regarded by many as a partial nuisance because it it inhibited sexual promiscuity and complicated easy divorce. So Christians stepped in and they saved these children. You know, more than that, I, I think Christians, they saw themselves in those children that just as God pursued them and picked them up off the trash heap of sin, they felt they should pursue and pick up those children that had been discarded. Well, given how kids were viewed, it suffice to say that by the way Paul writes here, that he elevates them to a level unheard of in the time of his day outside of the church. And it's as he does so that he lays out for them and us how we're to relate to one another, telling us what responsibility a child has toward their parents and a parent to their child. You can follow along as I read. We'll read the first, verse, first nine verses of chapter 6, Ephesians chapter 6. Paul writes this, Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters do the same to them, and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their masters and yours is in heaven and that there's no partiality with him. You know, 
There are times when I preach where I'm fairly confident when I'm preaching, where I preach from an area of strength. Well, I need to be honest today. That isn't so much the case. You see, despite the fact that my faith, next to my faith and my wife, there is nothing more important than my kids, despite the fact that there's nothing I care more about that I would spend more time, spend more time worrying about them, praying for them, hoping the best for them, and working to benefit them, despite all that, despite the fact I could take the rest of the sermon just telling you about each one of them, each one is so unique, and there's many of them, so it would take a while, I'm so proud of each one of them and what they've become and are becoming. But despite that, at times I do get frustrated with them. I've not always been sensitive to their needs. At times they've been hurt by things I've said. Certainly I've not always handled things the way I wish I had. Sure, I could make excuses. I could tell you that nothing seems to prepare you from the challenges of having a teenager or the incessant activity of a toddler, and you as parents know that. But the bottom line is this is an area that I'm still growing in. And, so, and I'm sure that if you were to talk to my kids, please don't, but if you were to talk to my kids, they can quote instances to you where I've messed up and failed to be the kind of father I'm supposed to be. And so as I preach this, don't think that I have it all together. Instead, as we go through this, know that I'm preaching to myself as much as to any of you. Let me also say this to my kids. I'm sorry for when I failed, when I've made the wrong call, or been too quick to act or speak. I love you guys more than you know. Well, here, Paul, he, he starts off by saying that children that are filled with the Spirit will obey and honor their parents. Now, children that are filled with the Spirit will obey and honor their parents. Paul, he doesn't pull any punches here. He, he doesn't lay out criteria here for kids to determine whether or not they should obey or when they have a right to not listen or disregard. Instead, he outright challenges children to obey their parents. In fact, he gives them two reasons to do so, starting out by saying it is right. And truthfully, by Paul putting it that way, Paul is implying that this isn't just a Christian idea, but one that has been recognized and taught by all the world's cultures, both ancient and contemporary. In fact, it's something that hasn't been questioned until recently when rebellion has been promoted on media and in movies. Obedience to parents is just expected. It is right. And for sure, that was especially the case when it came to faith in God. In fact, John Stott points out that this comes from the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother, which Paul's likely basing this on. And that commandment was thought by the Jews to be part of the first tablet of commandments, the commandments being on two tablets. The first, they thought it was on the first tablet, the tablet that referred to one's relationship to God, making obedience to parent part of one's relationship to God and making disobedience to parents as nothing but spiritual rebellion against God. Note that that's why in Deuteronomy 21 we read this. If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and though they discipline him, will not listen to them, then this father and his mother shall take hold of him and bring him out to the elders of his city at the gates of the place where he lives. And they shall say to the elders of the city, this our son is, st this our son is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all of them the city shall stone him to death with stones. So you shall purge the evil from your midst, and all Israel shall hear and fear. It's why in Exodus we read, Whoever strikes his father or mother shall be put to death, and whoever curses his father or mother shall be put to death. Obedience to parents, it was seen as central to their faith. Unless you think, that well, that's just an idea in the Old Testament. It doesn't really apply in the New Testament. Now, even though children were seen as more valuable in the New Testament, it continued. In Romans 1, when it speaks of those that rebel against God, it reads this, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. 
They were filled with all manners of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and maliciousness. They are gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolence, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, though they know God's righteous degree, that those who practice such things deserve to die. And in 2 Timothy 3, it reads, But understand this, in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanders, without self-control, brutal, not loving, good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people. You see, wherever you look, the Bible is clear that children owe their obedience to their parents. That's just part of what their obedience to God himself is. In other words, to dishonor one's parent is to dishonor God himself. In fact, the New Testament goes so far in the passages we just read as to to imply that a child of disobedience is ultimately a child who likely doesn't know Jesus. The Apostle Paul would put it this way in Colossians. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. And pleasing the Lord is something that we as believers are called to strive to do. Of course, that doesn't mean a child should obey their parents when it conflicts with what God would want. It doesn't mean that CAS doesn't need to step in and to protect their times or that parents have the right to treat their kids like slaves. But it does mean that a child is to obey, that, they, that those that they are entrusted to, they're to, to obey, especially those parents that do their part. Did you know that the Greek word here, translated obey, it comes from two words, literally meaning under and to listen. It literally means to listen under. That means that Paul's after more than compliance here. He's after compliance in a certain manner. In other words, we're not to be like the boy who misbehaved and was told by his teacher to go sit in the corner, who said, I'm sitting down on the outside, but I'm standing up on the inside. The call here, it's more than that. It's more than just outward obedience. Children, they don't honor their parents when they huff and puff or talk back to them. They don't honor their parents when they roll their eyes at them, even though they go on to comply. To honor a parent means to love them, to regard them highly, to show them respect. Now, I can hear some of you parents say, come on, Chad, that sounds simple enough, but you don't have my toddler or, or my teenager. And while I don't have yours, I have some of my own. So I know that just because they're supposed to obey doesn't mean they will. Now, that's why Paul calls parents later on here, specifically fathers, to instruct them. Now, not because it makes our lives easier, although it does, but because a child who disobeys his parents will likely disobey his heavenly father as well. So that doesn't make it easy, does it? One author put it this way. Consider the moment when a little three-year-old bundle of joy dressed in a new Easter dress ignores her daddy's nose and grabs a handful of candy from the table treats intended for the coming guests. Then when daddy patiently again tells this precious package of joy to put the candy back, she says, no. Now daddy knows if he does anything about this rebellion, he'll feel like the Grinch who stole Easter. But what should the father do? Even beyond that, beyond punishment, what what about a teen who wants to go out, who will be devastated if they don't go to whatever it is, but has lost that privilege for doing something? Should they be allowed to go or not? What does the Bible say here? Children, obey your parents for his right. You know, as a parent... I don't know if there's anything I hate more than consequencing my kids. I'm sure that there's some sick parents out there that get some sadistic pleasure out of seeing their kids sad and disappointed and depressed, but that's not me and it's not most parents I know. In fact, I think my kids know it. I think they figured out that I really don't like it. 
because the more upset they are, the, the less my resolve seems to be. They, they think they can see the inner turmoil on my face as I wrestle with myself not to cave in. Well, as parents, God, he must have known how easy it was to be torn by a love for her children. You see, when I as a father cannot bring myself to discipline my child, which happens because there's days I just don't want to be the bad guy anymore. When we're faced with a question that sometimes almost tears our heart out, should I allow my child to, to do this? Should, should I insist that my child obey? We need this simple phrase. We need to remember that it is right. Of course, that is only one reason that Paul gives children for why they should honor their parents. Paul gives a second, as he goes on to tell them that it might go well with them and they might live long. Quoting from the Old Testament, Paul, he, he tells us that a child who obeys will generally have a long and good life. You see, it's just a fact that children that obey godly parents are safer. They're less likely to find themselves in harmful situations, less likely to associate with those that might lead them astray, and less likely to develop harmful patterns in their lives. I mean, adults, they think back to those times that you found yourself in danger in tight places simply because you disobeyed your parents' warning. Over in Proverbs 4, it reads, Hear my son and accept my words, that the years of your life may be many. And in Proverbs 30, it reads this, The eye that mocks a father and scorns to obey a mother will be picked out by the ravens of the valley and eaten by the vultures. That's how important it is. Brian Chappell, he, he writes this illustration. He said, The damage disobedient causes was well demonstrated to my family on a trip to a amusement park years ago, which is now legendary for us. We were waiting in line for a train ride. As the wait lengthened, a five- or six-year-old child in front of us decided to climb on a fence railing to, the, to a position that made it hard for people, the remaining people in line, to pass him. His mother reacted quickly, saying, Johnny, come down from there. Johnny didn't even move an eyelash. Were not the damage being done so evident, it might have been comical. Johnny, come down from there right now. Johnny, come down. I won't tell you again. Johnny, I'm going to count to three. One, two, two, and a... Now, Johnny, I mean it. Johnny, I'm going to tell your father when we get home. Okay, Johnny, just stay there. I'm going to leave you if you don't come down. Johnny, please come down. I'll buy you an ice cream cone. Brian White writes, we squeezed by that child when it was our turn to ride the train. But for all we know, Johnny is now 20 years old and still on that fence rail. Well, such a child, if left that, like they were that day, will reap just as much disapproval as those that watched it in disdain on that day. The negative glares that shook their head at him, they'll, reach that, they'll see that much disdain in their life throughout their life. I know that that's one of the reasons that the book of Proverbs says, wisely tells us that parents who, not, who don't discipline their children must hate their children. Such parenting can subject the child to a lifetime of misery. They can be seen as the bane of society, a fate typically we reserve for our enemies. Dear parents, we must lovingly teach our children disobedience. We must lovingly teach our children obedience. So you need to know that isn't all that's called here. It isn't just for little children that Paul's speaking to. No, while we might grow out of our call to obey our children, our parents, you need to know that we never outgrow our obligation to honor our parents. That's an area that I haven't always done well in either. I remember back to the, my graduation from Bible college. My parents had come down to Chicago to be there for the ceremony, and we're staying in downtown Chicago. Late one night at 11 o'clock, I was down at their hotel, and I, I was used to walking through downtown Chicago late at night. I'd been in Chicago for years doing that. But they weren't, and they weren't really comfortable with it. So when I told them I was going back to the dorms, 
they told me that they would drive me. Not really seeing that need, when they went to get the keys, I just left and started walking. I was confident, but truthfully, I wasn't really honoring them. Looking back to honor them, I should have just taken the ride. We're to honor them and treat them with respect. Honor them when they get older. Honor them when they need more care. And honor them even when they start to decline. Here Paul is saying that someone that is filled with the Spirit will do that. Now, having dealt with children, Paul then turns his attention to parents and specifically fathers. Telling us that a father who is filled with the Spirit will discipline and instruct his children. That a father who is filled with the Spirit will discipline and instruct his children. Look at verse 4. It reads this, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. I don't know about you, but given the challenges of parenting that Paul would give this one short verse is more than a little exasperating. After all, Paul didn't seem to lack words, but he only gives one verse here. I mean, where is my guidance on how to handle a baby who's colicky or a toddler with ADD or a rebellious teenager? Where is the instruction I need to, on how to handle a boyfriend that shows up at my house? One simple verse? And certainly Paul could have written more. But you need to know that that isn't all that Paul says. Now instead, even in this book, Paul's words here are being built on what the foundation that he's already laid in this book. You see, for one, it is clear that Paul here is speaking to believers. After all, everything in this book has been written to help believers understand how to live. So in some regards, Paul's assuming that the Christian parent will already do the things he's called them to do. In fact, to get a sense of how these are tied together, one only has to go back to the beginning of chapter 5, where he started this instruction on how to handle things in your house. And it reads this, Be imitators of God, therefore as dearly loved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Making godly parent one of imitating God. A godly father is one that represents the fatherhood of God well, who by their example is teaching their kids how to, their Heavenly Father sees them and loves them just because they're imitating Him. In other words, a parent is called to model this for their kids. And that makes sense when you stop and think about it. After all, whether we like it or not, for better or worse, we all tend towards, we are all drawn towards becoming like our parents. They're the model that we follow. Years ago, I was driving to a wedding out near Orangeville, and I had a car behind me that was tailgating me, wanting me to go faster. I was speeding at the time, but I wasn't going fast enough for them. So when another lane came open, I got over. Well, the driver behind me, he ra raced past me, and as he did so, he, he decided he'd give me the finger. What the driver didn't see was a toddler in the seat behind him fumbling for the right finger, trying to emulate his dad in the front seat. If you're a parent here, don't fool yourself. You are shaping your kids by how you live, by what you model for them. They're constantly watching. They watch whether you value the church, whether you speak the truth in love, whether you work honestly, whether you give generously, whether you encourage others. They notice if you forgive or retaliate or hold on to bitterness. Well, Paul is building on that instruction when he comes to parenting. In fact, let me be honest. I'm not sure there's anything more important than, to being a godly parent than imitating God. As if you do that well, in all likelihood, the children you raise will do that as well. So that's not the only foundation that Paul has laid here. No, instead, this falls on the heels of what a biblical marriage should like, look like. In other words, one of the foundations Paul sets is a healthy home. Now, that doesn't mean a child can't be raised well by a single parent, but that that is not the regular pattern that God intends. One author summing all this up wrote this, By affirming that good child-rearing occurs within a context of Christian living, Rather than a, through a precise set of right or wrong parental behaviors, 
The Bible assures us that a child's nurture is not determined by a set of rules that we mysteriously divine from Scripture's relatively few statements on specific parenting practices. This conclusion, it flies in the face of some handbooks of Christian parenting that teach there is one correct way to affirm or show affection or discipline. Not only does such teaching defy the liberties of Scripture and deny the dignity of individual differences, such rigid instructions also seem to imply that a child can be ruined if we make a mistake in some particular aspect or moment of a child's upbringing. This is precisely what Scripture does not say. We will all make mistakes as a parent. This does not automatically make us bad parents or immediately threaten the ultimate welfare of our children. There are times when I know I've made mistakes with our children. There are moments of improper discipline, impatience, and poor judgment that I hope they won't remember. Yet if I fear that some particular mistake will ruin my children, then I'll ultimately be paralyzed. However, the fact that God places a foundation of biblical child-rearing in a spiritual and marital life context means that no single act of well-intentioned parenting is determinative of a child's culture. The grace that a child that a Christian heart embraces and Christian marriages should foster allows Christian parents the privilege to fail, seek forgiveness, and try again. The Father's unconditional eternal love erases the dread that momentary lapses in judgment will ruin our children or destroy our relationship with Him. And that author is right. Well, well with that foundation, Paul he then goes on to give us some of the expectation that God has on us as parents. Starting not so much with what we are to do, but with how we are to do it saying we're not to provoke them. Well, what does that mean? The word Paul uses here, he often used it more often than, than this way. He used it to refer to God's own just anger over Israel's adultery, his exasperation over their lack of commitment in their faith. So if nothing else, this word would imply that children have a right to be upset with us as parents when we as parents act in a way that conflicts with our own spiritual values, when we're hypocrites and our words and actions don't line up like when a parent doesn't have the best interest of their child at heart, or aren't treating them as Christ would have them, or when we speak of forgiveness and yet never give it. But not only that, I think Paul has more in mind here. After all, in the ancient world, fathers had absolute control, and they were sometimes harsh. So in all likelihood, this includes things like failing to take into account that they are kids, not treating them as individuals and in how we handle them, or disciplining them inconsistently, pressuring them to achieve our goals, not their own, or withdrawing our love from them. D.A. Peterson, in his book, For Families Only, he tells us some ways that might provoke one's child's anger. He writes of a time when the 10-year-olds in Mrs. Frost's class at Brookside, New Jersey Community Sunday School expressed their views on what's wrong with grown-ups. The kids came up with these complaints, and most of them are fairly insightful. Number one, grown-ups make promises, then they forget all about them. Or else they say it wasn't really a promise, just a maybe. Number two, grown-ups don't always do the things they're telling their children to do, like pick up their things or always tell the truth. Number three, grown-ups never listen to what children have to say. They always decide ahead of time what they're going to answer. Number four, grown-ups make mistakes, but they won't admit them. They always pretend that they weren't mistakes at all or that someone else made them. Number five, grown-ups interrupt children all the time and think nothing of it. If a child interrupts a grown-up, he gets a scolding or something worse. Number six, grown-ups never under, understand how much children want a certain thing, a certain color or shape or size. If it's something they don't admire, even if the child spends their own money on it, they always say, I can't imagine why you'd want that old thing. Number seven, sometimes grown-ups punish children unfairly. It isn't right if you've done some little thing wrong and grown-ups take away something that means an awful lot to you. Other times you can do something really bad and, they're gonna, and they say they're going to punish you, but they don't. You never know. 
and you ought to know. Number eight, grown-ups are always talking about what they did and what they knew when they were 10 years old, but they never try to think what it's like to be a 10-year-old right now. Parents, one of the ways we submit to one another, that we show the filling of the Spirit, is that we don't provoke our children to anger. Now, Paul, having told us the manner we're to parent, he then goes on to tell us what we are to do as parents, telling us that we are to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. You know, so often we rush, to, rush past to that discipline and instruction part that we miss the expectation is to bring them up. Stephen Roberts in USA World Report wrote, in our popular culture, adulthood is too often defined as doing what you want to do, not what you're supposed to do. Making a baby is a sign of a status while caring for one is not. Half of Americans who marry and have children eventually divorce. For many, marriage is more like a hobby than a commitment, a phase instead of a trust. We are becoming a country of deadbeat dads who don't pay their bills and dead tired moms who work two jobs to pick up the slack. Even many parents who pay for their children don't pay attention to their children. In doing so, they miss out on some of life's greatest joys, hearing a small giggle, holding a small hand. As Spurgeon General Jocelyn Elder notes, it's easier for many children to find drugs than it is for them to find hugs. Probably the best thing that society can do for its toddlers is to make parent an honorable title again. No job is more important, and yet no job is more often taken for granted. Then he says this, Becoming a parent should be the result of love, a sign of a lasting relationship, not just a passing infatuation, a source of pride and not remorse. Only then will our children be safe. You know, today there's many that miss that, and they leave everyone and anyone else to raise their kids. Grandparents, childcare workers, teachers, the youth pastor, the TV, the internet. But make no mistake, the job to raise children lies with the parents. And here Paul is calling for us to take an active role in our kids' lives, to be the ones that bring them up. That word bringing up, to bring them up, it's the same word that Paul used for back when he referred to wives and how the husbands were to cherish and nourish their wives. That word, it actually just means to nurture, to nourish. In other words, Paul's calling us to be compassionate and care for them in a similar way that he called for husbands to care for their wives when he told the husbands that they should care for them as they do their own body. Well, in the same way, a father needs to nurture their children. That means that as Paul wants us to create an environment of grace and love and support and respect and encouragement, a place where we don't just meet their material needs, but try to meet their emotional needs as well. well that's just a part of what nourishing is. As Paul goes on to add to that by telling us that it also includes discipline and instructing them in the Lord. Over in the book of Hebrews, the author writes this, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as a son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you're not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while, as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who've been trained by it. Word of discipline. Not to get some satisfaction out of it or to get our own way or out of anger, but for their good. Charles Swindles once came up with a list of how to train your child to be a delinquent. Among the list was never give him any spiritual training. Wait until he's 21 and let him decide for himself. 
Avoid using the word wrong. It will give you your child a guilt complex. You can condition him to believe later when he's arrested that society is against him and he is being persecuted. And let him read all the printed material he can get his hands on. Never think of monitoring his TV or internet. Sterilize the silverware, but let him feast his mind on garbage. Each and every one of those things on his list speaks of a reluctance to discipline and train. Friends, if you're a parent today, you need to discipline your children. You need to hold them accountable. Not, not look for opportunities to discipline, but take, you need to hold them accountable. No, it isn't pleasant at times. At times, it's very painful. But if you don't do it, if you aren't prepared to endure some unpleasantness and pain for your kid's good, how much do you truly love them? What's more, Paul is saying here that doing so is a sign of being filled by God's Spirit. So if you don't do it, then you need to ask, am I filled with God's Spirit? Of course, discipline, it needs to be accompanied with Christ-centered instruction. You need to instruct them. You need to teach them when you're walking, when you're driving, when you're having meals with them. You ought to talk to them about Jesus, how, what he's done for them, how much he loves them. You ought to ask them questions, warn them about the danger of sin, and above all, pray for them. Well, if you do that, whether you're nourishing them and being compassionate towards them or disciplining them, then I believe that God is honored. And Paul is saying here that you show the evidence of God's Spirit in you working through you. Notice lastly, briefly, the, the submission Paul speaks of here, it flows out into our other relationships as well. As Paul closes out this section by telling us that believers that are filled with the Spirit will reflect that filling in all the relationships. Paul, he does so as he talks about slaves and masters. At, time, at the time, slaves were considered part of the family. So after talking about husbands and wives and children and parents, it only made sense that he talk about slaves. Today, we don't have slavery. And when we read this, we wonder why Paul wouldn't have just condemned it. The problem is we see slavery through what it was in the States. And yet slavery at the time of Paul was much different. Now, that's not to say there weren't abuses of it. A slave could be whipped, they could be branded, they could be killed. But slaves in the first century generally were much better. They could gain their freedom. Few ever reached old age as a slave. In fact, during the time of Augustus, at least 50% of slaves were freed by the time they were 30. What's more, it wasn't ethically based. People became a slave for all kinds of reasons. Some because they were conquered, others because of, because of debt. But it wasn't because of the color of your skin. Being a slave didn't indicate your social status. In fact, by all appearances, you couldn't tell the difference between a slave and a free person. And it was common. Some think that there were 60 million slaves at the time. Half of the population was slaves. Some slaves even had their own slaves. Regardless, Christianity would lead to the abolition of that. But Paul, he doesn't condemn it here. Instead, he tells us that a slave... How a slave and master who's filled by the Spirit should act. That a slave will submit to their master as the Lord, obey them out of loyalty for Christ, work as if they're working for Christ, working with all their heart, rendering their service as to God, knowing that God will reward them. And then he calls masters to do the same, to treat them as they would Christ, knowing that both their slaves and them have the same master in heaven. Now today many preachers, they try to take these principles to the work environment, telling us that we should work with all our hearts for our employers and telling employers to treat their employees as Christ would have them to. But, well, there's no denying that if a slave and a master who were to demonstrate Christ's love in this, in this context of inequality, that we should be willing to do so in our work, well, that is true. Today, your boss is not your master, and you are not a slave. So while it's true, I think there's other passages that speak to that. Instead, what seems to matter to me, even in that relationship, Paul is saying that it should be fashioned by one's relationship to Jesus, that they are to treat each other as to the Lord. And because of that, I think it becomes a model for every other relationship. 
In other words, whether they're our boss or employees or friends, the guy next, in the car next to us or the customer that's unruly in front of us, we're to reflect Jesus and treat them as unto the Lord. That being filled with the Spirit will affect every relationship and every interaction we have. Well, here in the start of chapter 6, Paul outlines for us that children who are filled with the Spirit will obey their parents, and parents that are filled will care for and train up their children. He tells us that being filled should have changed how we relate to everyone. Now, I don't know where you're at today, but perhaps you're here and you're a child, you're a youth, and you find obeying your parents hard. You don't like the rules of your parent. You think they're restrictive and unfair in today's world, and you want to rebel. If so, here God is calling you to obey them, even when they fail, when they fail and they don't do their part. He's calling you to figure out how you can honor them and do so, simply because to honor them is to honor God himself. Or maybe you're listening, and you are a parent, and you realize you haven't been doing your job. You've been failing your kids. You haven't been nourishing them. You've been failing to teach them the ways of God. You haven't been disciplining them. Then if so, you need to know that you're not only failing your kids and hurting them, but you're failing to live in the Spirit. So today, God is calling, God is calling you to make a change. So surrender this area of your life to the Spirit and start parenting as God, as God would have you to. Dear friends, God wants your family to succeed. And here he gives you a blueprint for it. The only question is, will you and I follow it? Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that we can call you that. And you've given us an example of how we are to parent. Forgive us. Forgive me for when I failed to do that. Help us to be those that train up our children well. Lord, help us to be children who honor and obey our parents as unto the Lord. That we might be filled with your spirit and show it in our relationship with our parents and our kids. In Jesus' name, amen.